You know, everyone wants to succeed with money, right? But our definition, our, our culture's definition of what it means to succeed is unattainable, honestly. You know, how, how much more do we need to actually feel rich? A maddening amount more, according to E-Trade, right? How much more do we need to feel content? More. How much do we need to feel like it's enough? More. I mean, the answer is always more. But let me ask you, what if we could actually feel wealthy? You know, like where we actually feel content. And, and like we have more than enough and can be generous and can save and all that. And what if that's actually what God wants for you? That's what I want to talk to us about today, is how do we actually get there? And not just in this life, but in the life to come. You know, we're talking uh, about uh, rewards, eternal rewards, and, and that the life to come is a real life. And, and if you weren't here three weeks ago, I tried to convince you again that this is not, you know, a fantasy. This is real. Go back and watch that if you didn't see it. But the people who claim that they have gotten a peek into it say it's the life to come is more real than the one we experience now like times a thousand like imagine the beauty of earth times a thousand uh, imagine relationships and joy and and love times a thousand imagine work and adventure and, and even fun times a thousand I mean who knows what they'll be in heaven make golf you know water sports soccer in a fifth dimension imagine wouldn't that be cool? Oh, actually, I, there, there won't be golf, uh, unfortunately, in heaven. There's no cheating line or cussing, so how can there be golf, right? <laughs> but you know, many people think that God's goal is to take money from us, but I'm convinced God actually wants us to succeed with money in every way, and most of us have never considered that. First, I'll bet you've never thought that God would say, make all you can. But I'm pretty sure that's what he would say. In fact, John Wesley, who started the Methodist Church, studied this parable we're going to look at today, and that's exactly what he concluded. We're going to look at one of Jesus' most confusing, you know, top one or two most confusing parables. It's about a crooked, shrewd manager. Now, a parable is a lot like a joke. There's a punchline, and if you miss the punchline, you miss the whole point. So with that in mind, listen to a paraphrase of Jesus' parable. So Jesus says there was a rich business tycoon who employed a guy to manage all of his affairs. And this rich tycoon had many people indebted to him. And one day he calls the manager into his office because he finds out he hadn't been faithful. And, and he says to the manager, you, you know, you have been crooked with my money. You haven't been faithful with, with my interests. You're fired. Now, this crooked manager was not a good guy at all. But he realizes, I'm about to lose my job. I'm, I've lost my reputation. I'm going to lose everything. I won't even have a home. What can I do? And he comes up with a shrewd plan. Now, remember, Jesus is making up this story to make a point. Okay? This is Jesus' story. And the, so the crooked manager calls in. Uh, the, the, the rich man had said, before you leave, I want an accounting of, of all that you've done. And so the crooked manager calls in the people who owe his rich boss debt, and he says, what do you owe him? Look, Luke 16, 6. The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager said, well, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. <laughs> nice, 50% discount. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next guy. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. 
Here, the manager said, take the bill, change it to 800 bushels. Check this out. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. Jesus said the boss had to admire the guy for being shrewd. What? He's lazy, dishonest, unfaithful, self-centered as the day is long. I mean, is, is Jesus commending this guy? And that's why this parable is so confusing. Most just skip it. But they miss the punch. Jesus is saying he's shrewd. He worked the situation to secure his future, to benefit his future. By reducing his debts, he indebted others to himself so that when all, all of it was gone, he would have friends to help them. And then to shock us even more, Jesus adds this, Luke 16, 8. And it's true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than the children of light. Now, we've been talking uh, about this. The children of light, those are those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of light. Those who love God, who have accepted this free gift of, of right relationship with God, citizens of heaven. And we've been learning how, you know, our, our thoughts and our motives and our deeds on earth matter. They, they don't earn us relationship with God. God loves everyone equally and accepts us all if we turn our hearts back to him. But they do add up for rewards for eternity. And that's Jesus' point. As children of light, he says, look, you got to live in the world's economy. You have to make money. You have to pay bills. You have to provide for your, for your children, all that. And you should be shrewd. You should be smart about it. That's why I think Jesus would say, make all you can, but with honesty and integrity. Not like the children of the world who use each other and are dishonest or lack integrity or will do anything for money, but as children of light, working hard, honest, smart, with integrity, and with a different end game in mind. So here's the punch. Jesus is speaking to those of us who follow him, and, and he's saying be shrewd or smart about worldly wealth, and he's using a rabbinic way of teaching, which is always to go from the lesser to the greater. So what he's saying is, if this jacked up, lazy, dishonest, self-centered, worldly guy is smart enough to use what he cannot keep to gain a sec secure future for himself, are you? That's it. That's exactly what he's saying. Because Jesus' next words in Luke 16 are this. 16.9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Make all you can. Use worldly wealth shrewdly. But to what end? Well, with eternity in mind. Gaining friends for eternity. Helping others erase their debts to God and be restored relationally. It's good for them, but it's just smart. It's shrewd for you and for me. It's in our best interest to do that because all of this is just play money, but there's something permanent coming. Like you remember uh, playing Monopoly as a kid? Those of you who uh, grew up in other countries or are watching online, you know, you, you may not know, but Monopoly is a board game where, where you go around the board and you get, you get paper money to start with. And every time you go around, you get more money and buy property and buy houses and all these things. And, and when people land on your properties, you can charge rent and you can become real powerful and wealthy in the game of Monopoly, right? And you can either be nice or you can be a jerk. 
But at the end of the game, all the plastic houses and cars and all the paper money goes back in the box. And all that's left is how you played the game, right? And whether your brothers and sisters hate you for being such a jerk, <laughs> right? It's all about relationship in the end. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to us. Exactly. So he's saying, make all you can, but be shrewd, be smart about it and about what you use it for. And then the second thing I bet you wouldn't expect God to say is save all you can. God really does want us to save, to not lose everything we've worked so hard for. And not just for the short run, saving on planet Earth, but for eternity. Now, this is a bit counterintuitive as well, because there are two ways to save. You can save for this life, but you can also save for the life to come. Now, wisdom for this life, first of all, is, he says, get out of debt as fast as you can, and then save up enough to take care of emergencies. Because God knows, you know, that's just, that's just wise in a fallen world, right? A broken world where, as the bumper sticker says, stuff happens. It's stuff in church. I don't want any emails, all right? <laughs> but look at the Proverbs. This is God's wisdom. Proverbs 6.3. If in debt, free yourself since you've fallen into your neighbor's hands. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Gets a little personal, doesn't it? <laughs> Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, overseer, or ruler, yet it stores up provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So God says his wisdom is get out of debt as fast as you can. Now, that's not the wisdom of our culture, which is why so many of us, though we are rich compared to the rest of the world, are still in debt. But he wants us to free ourselves from that as fast as we can. That's why we offer Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University here. Because they have a proven method within a couple years to help people get out of debt and start to save. You know about a thousand of us here at Gateway have gone through that and cumulatively paid off more about five million dollars of debt. Isn't that awesome? So, hey, you know. If that's you, you still have college debt or credit card debt or whatever, sign up. Go on our website right now. Sign up for FPU, Financial Peace University. It's going to be starting in January. God wants us to be wise, though. Get rid of the debt and then store up for winter like the ants do. <laughs> like when the winter of life comes, there's always an emergency. And what Dave Ramsey teaches is save up three months of wages in a do not touch or die account that's for true crises. And your favorite band coming for South by Southwest is not a true crisis, just <laughs> FYI. All right, now, if we stopped right there, you could get debt free, you could save up lots and lots of, of money, a fortune, and then lose it all because you saved nothing, in fact. Believe it or not, God doesn't want to take from you. He wants to help you gain more than you've ever imagined. But as I said, you can save in this world's economy, but you can also save in God's new economy that's coming. One is temporary savings. The other is eternal savings. Now, this is not a joke or a scam. This is actually Jesus trying to help you and me be shrewd, smart for our own good. You know, there are lots of places that you can invest Shrewdly, stocks, bonds, money markets, uh, all of them have you know, property. They have different risk-reward profiles, but none of them are eternal. None of them are ultimately lasting, which is why Jesus gives us parables like this. Luke 12, 15. 
Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Then Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, I have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded from you, and then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. See what Jesus is saying? Be shrewd, be smart for your own sake. Yeah, save for yourself, that's good, that's fine, but don't be a fool about it. Because you can save up barnfuls of money and stuff, but none of it ultimately will last. And if you're not rich toward God, you won't take any of it with you. But if you're rich toward God, you will. Well, so what does that mean? Well, I think it means God wants us to take some of this monopoly money and invest it in his interests, which is building his kingdom through people, serving and caring about people, helping them. And that's shrewd or smart for you and me because we're building savings that last. Have you ever thought about that? That that it's actually for my sake that God wants me to grow in generosity and invest more in his kingdom efforts? That's what he's saying. You know, a couple weeks ago I told you about living in a communist economy as one economy collapsed and a new economy came. What's happening right now in Venezuela, I found out. Uh, You know, the, the corrupt government is artificially inflating uh, the believer uh, and, and as a result they say it's that 10 believers can buy $1 of goods but in fact last year it took 3,000 to buy $1 of goods this year it takes 8,000 the believer is worthless now a smart shrewd Venezuelan would have been exchanging as many believers for dollars as possible all year long so that when it went away, they would actually have currency of lasting value. That is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's actually given us the best investment tip ever. Not just for this life, for eternity. So God wants us to save, but not in a foolish way, not out of fear or discontentment or ego, driving us toward more and more and more, but investing nothing in God's uh, coming economy. So save all you can. Well, how? Well, you know what I've practiced, what I've taught my kids, and what I've taught our church for many years is the 10-10-80 plan. The 10-10-80 plan is simply this. Give 10% back to God first. Save for eternity first. Then pay yourself 10%, you know, toward savings or first toward debt reduction and then keep going toward savings and then learn to live on 80% of your paycheck. You do that you, you learn to live on the 80% and you're on an incredible road to wealth building in this life and the life to come. Some of you are saying, well, why 10% back to God? How about 20% to me? <laughs> Here's why. It's very important to understand. It's God's test of how trustworthy we are with an economy that's passing away with how much he can trust us with lasting wealth. So Jesus says, right after the strange parable of the shrewd guy, in Luke 16, 11, So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? There's something coming that's real. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, meaning all this property that will go away when we die, 
Who will give you property of your own? Eternal property. No one can serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other or, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. This is exactly why God uh, asks us to give back to him first because money is a rival God, unequal to any other. So easily, he knows how easy it is for us to make it first in our lives. You know, to trust in it most, to count on it most, uh, to think about it most, uh, to worship it most. That's what worship is. It's whatever we give most worth or value to. And God wants to test us in order to set us free from worshiping something that can't save us, can't give us contentment, peace, joy, love, happiness, or even security like God can. But it is a main rival. And so think about it. See, God needs nothing from us. He needs nothing. In fact, anything we give back to him is just what he's already given us. He made us. He created us with all our abilities, even to make money. And so what he wants is our loving trust. And we demonstrate trust as we trust in his promises and love as we obey his commands. So God said this to Moses in Leviticus 27.30. He said a tithe or tenth of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. Every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy or set apart to the Lord. And Jesus then reiterates this in Matthew 23, 23, where he says to the Pharisees, you ought to tithe, but not to prove you're better than other people, but out of a heart of mercy and justice and faithfulness to God. See, he wants our hearts. And so God sets it up so that he asks us to give the first 10% of everything back to him and what he's trying to do in the world, because that gets our hearts involved in what he cares about most, which is people is other people, serving people, loving people. Now notice something in that passage. Um, it says it's not us giving our money to God. It says it belongs to him. So this is not our generosity. This is just faithfulness. This is just his test to see who can be faithful with what he's entrusted. But you know, even in this, when we struggle, God is is merciful and loving. He knows how hard it is for us, so he gives a promise. Even as he reminds people who were not doing this, he also gives them a promise. Look at this in, in Malachi 3, 8. It says, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. He says, bring the whole tithe, or tenth, into, into the storehouse, the local temple or local church, that there may be food in my house, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. Now, whether you believe this or not, God is saying he wants you to have plenty. In fact, blessing upon blessing. He's not trying to actually take from you. He's trying to break the power of money over my life and over yours, and he says, test me. Now, interestingly, this is the only place in, in the Bible he gives us the right to test him. You know, that's why over, over the years, I've challenged people to take God up on the test. I've said, look, you know, he said it. Why don't you test him? And for three or four months, tithe 10% first. And just at the end of those four months, see if God hasn't been faithful and you aren't glad you did. And you don't feel more blessed. And then if you do, keep going. If not, you can always go back. 
And every time I've had people come up afterwards and they've said, hey, last time you said that, I decided finally, I'm gonna take God up on the test. And they tell me some incredible story. And, uh, and this time I decided, instead of reading something to you, uh, I wanted you to hear it yourself from a very unlikely tither. Meet Peru. Hi, my name is Puru Agrawal. I grew up as a Hindu. I was born in India, moved to Chicago when I was three. I grew up thinking, Tithing is how the church swindles you out of your money. And um, you know, I moved to Austin in 1999 and you know, first experienced Jesus in 2010 during a personal crisis where that was you know, the first time I heard God's voice in my head telling me things were going to be okay. And I started moving closer to Jesus in 2013 is, is when I first started tithing. And the story is pretty interesting because, you know, I had been a co-founder for a startup. We really built this company up. It seemed like it was doing well. And in 2013, we just run off a cliff. We had been forced to downsize from over 70 employees to just 12. I remember running around begging people to stay, you know, to go without pay to... Uh, hang in there. Our lead institutional investor had put in just a little bit of money and said, you know, hey, if the 12 can somehow achieve the same revenue targets as the original plan, you know, which was meant to be achieved with 75 plus people, you know, then they would go ahead and, and reinvest into the company. And, and we had worked our butts off and miraculously had reinvented the company, reinvented how we did everything, and we had hit our revenue targets. And yet, the lead investor wasn't convinced, they weren't comfortable, and they decided to pull out, right? And so, on Thanksgiving day of 2013, I found myself in this position where I was going to have to go back and tell everybody that, hey, thanks for all your efforts and your hard work and trusting us, but, you know, we're done. And as I was getting ready to make these calls, I remember hearing John say that this is the one place in the Bible where God says, you can test him on this. And so, you know, I decided at that moment to tithe $2,500. You know, that's the amount that I would have been tithing if I had been getting paid at this reduced level over the last six months. And I wrote a check. And you know, from there, things get really weird, right? So 30 minutes later, I get a call back from my partner. And he says that literally 30 minutes earlier, even though the institutional investor had backed out, one of the angel investors had gotten really excited by our story and had stepped up. Watching these guys hit that target, the institutional investor came back in and matched it. And... We ended up raising twice the amount of money that we thought we'd been trying to raise. In order to just recognize everybody hanging in there on Thanksgiving Day, they were going to give everybody a $2,500 bonus. I approached a mentor of mine. He came back and said, you know, I found throughout my life that you can't outgive God. And, and so I've been tithing ever since. You know, I've seen it true in my life, 
as I've done this, God is faithful. I was in Branson uh, three weeks ago, and I heard a guy who is living, you know, paycheck to paycheck say the same thing of how God is faithful. And, and so many of you have told stories like this. But you won't know until you test God. So earn all you can, save all you can, and then give all you can. You know, a thing to note too is it's not give to get. Uh, it's give to love God and partner with him and what he's doing in the world. And he promises that he will bless you. Now, blessings come in ways other than monetary. I've seen in my own life. You know, there are things money can't buy that God wants to bless you with, like contentment and security and joy and generosity and happiness and love and, and, and all those things. Now, the other thing you need to know, though, is when you are faithful, God doesn't want you to feel guilty for every purchase. God doesn't want you to go around feeling guilty, like, I could give more, I should, I ought to. He wants you to have enough and to be thankful and enjoy the blessings he's given with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says this, command those who are rich in this present world, which by the way, if you have the ability to own a car, you're like in the top 5% of the world, okay? So that's most of us in here. Those who are rich, not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See that? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming economy. So that they will take hold of life that's true life, that's truly life. So thank God for all you have as you enjoy it. That combats greed and jealousy and discontentment and envy. You know, if you're going to compare, compare down and be thankful. Give thanks, not just during this time of the year, but all year long. And then tithing is just shrewd. It's just really smart because it's saving for eternity. It's building into people. And God says he will bless it. As you're more faithful, he'll bless you more and more. And as God blesses, we have a choice. We can spend more. We can save more. We can invest more in his kingdom. The choice is ours, you know? And, and, and so as we give as we save more and more, as we give more and more, God promises to reward more and more. Now, I don't think it's an amount that matters. It's a percent. It's what we're faithful with, with what we've been entrusted with. And the rewards God promises, you know, I, I am convinced are going to make all the E-Trade commercials of bling and exotic vacations look mundane and stupid. <laughs> and that's why Jesus keeps saying things like this. Luke 12, 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom to come. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. Treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near, no moth destroys, no internet hacker can drain, no recession can erode, right? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And our hearts is really what God wants most. But we hear this, and if you're like I was, you are afraid. <laughs> I used to hear this like, oh, crud, you know, because I feared God wanted more than I wanted to do or to give. But it's just the opposite. Again, this world's economy really will come to an end. Jesus is really trying to give us the best investment advice ever for all eternity. And he's promising us rewards 
that are far greater than anything. Any amount of bling or, or luxury vacations or, you know, crazy stuff we can have here or glory or fame or honor. I mean, stop and think about it. God created everything we love on this earth. All the rewards we work for that we're motivated by, he created us with that ability. Every good gift is from him. And guess what? This world is a screwed up version of creation. It's in rebellion against the creator. That's why he subjected every good gift to chaos. Nothing really lasts or fits our deepest needs. So when everything is made right, finally, in God's kingdom, where he's ruling, you know, not everybody for themselves ruling, why would we think the reward would be less satisfying? We got to trust him, though. You know, that's, that's why, honestly, I've tithed ever since I worked as an engineer, and I, I've given 10% to whatever church I've been involved in, and I've worked for nonprofits, too. What I realized is, you know, in a nonprofit, you can raise money from anywhere and anyone but a church is supported only by those who go to that church. So I always tithe 10% to the local church there. But then I started to realize, the more I realized this is really true what Jesus is saying, I realized I need a giving plan. So that as God does bless more and more, I can save more and more, and I can give a greater and greater percentage. It's just wise. Save in both economies. Do you have a giving plan? You know, we're, we're told to have a retirement plan and have a college fund plan and have a this plan and a that plan. But the shrewd, smart person will also be planning beyond this life. You know, God has done so much through us as a church because you guys are so amazingly generous. And you know, we have a chance to put this into practice here at year end. You know, last year we did... Um, Last year, you generously gave above and beyond what you normally give at, at year end. And as a result, we were able to provide food and medical care and mentoring in the name of Jesus for, uh, for uh, refugee kids both here in Austin and in Syria. And as a result, you guys gave 200000 to uh, to meet the needs of 1,000 refugee kids all year long. It's amazing what we can do together in one month. Yeah, give yourselves a hand. You know, now as a church, we want to keep, we, we are having an epicenter of impact throughout Austin all year long as we mobilize thousands of us to, to serve and to love and to meet physical and spiritual needs in all kinds of ways. And I don't know if you know the way it works, but we have a volunteer board of directors. They set budgets. They oversee an annual audit. Our books are always open. They set my salary. I don't make more the more you give. <laughs> I have a fixed salary. But the more we do together, the more we're able to have an ongoing impact, not only through Austin, but we also look for epicenter partners in the poorest places around the world. So, for instance, uh, we are looking for partners, churches, organizations working through churches to meet physical and spiritual needs that have a, a ripple effect, a multiplying effect. And 10% of every dollar that comes into our church goes to these epicenter partners every month. And then at year end, we look for ways to go above and beyond to meet special needs. Now, you know the news has been filled this year with unprecedented disaster, right? I mean... Harvey, Irma, Maria, Las Vegas, Charlottesville, Mexico City, Sutherland Springs. I, I could go on. When the news moves on, people forget. You realize that? So what's the plan? Well, the church remains. 
And, and it's the church's opportunity because the needs remain as well. And I believe this unprecedented disaster calls for unprecedented generosity. I think this is our opportunity to invest in God's kingdom by serving the poorest in areas of, of greatest need right now through the local church. So what we're going to do is here this year at year end, our epicenter giving, what we give above and beyond what we normally give in, in December. So between now and December 31st, everything that comes in above uh, what our board said as our budget will, is going to go to four epicenter partners. You know, Harvey's old news, but there are people in poverty in downtown Houston with no insurance who still can't rebuild. And we're partnered with Ecclesia Church in downtown Houston. Some of you have gone down there to serve with them. We're going to help people rebuild. And what goes above and beyond at year end, the Caribbean islands, you know, they barely made the news, but Maria followed Irma and they were wiped out. Now we're in partnership with Mission of Hope in, in Haiti. We give to them every month. And because of that, they have actually mobilized 1 million meals and tarps to people in poverty and in crisis across the Caribbean already. But they need much more. And so here at year end, we'll go to help them do more. In Burundi, Africa, it hadn't even made the news. And yet they're in the most desperate famine. Three out of five children there are malnutrition because of it. We're in partnership with World Relief, looking to meet spiritual and physical needs through a network of churches there. And we're going and serving with them. Uh, we give to them monthly, but at year end, we have an opportunity to help farmers greatly increase the yield to, to feed thousands more. So we're going to do that. And then in Las Vegas, we helped plant Verve Church. In fact, Rob, our executive pastor, helped plant that, that church. And they have been meeting the needs of the thousands of families and victims. They're the church closest to, you know, this mass shooting that happened. And in this window of crisis, we're going to help them in doing uh, ongoing counseling and, and ministering to families and others who have been through that. So here's what I want to challenge us to do. At year end here, First of all, as you think about next year, if you've never tested God with tithing, do it. Decide for the next four months, I'm going to give 10% first and just see if God doesn't come through. Don't try to figure out the math. You're not figuring God into the math. Trust him and see if you're not glad. And then for all of us, let's go above and beyond in the month of December and, and let's meet this unprecedented disaster with unprecedented generosity, all right? Let me close with this story. Uh, Jim Elliott was a young guy married to Elizabeth Elliott who felt God calling them uh, to, to love and serve and minister to Ecuador's Hurani Indians who are known to be a very dangerous tribe. They used all their possessions to invest in literacy schools so they could learn the language and translate the Bible. Uh, Jim with the team went and first contacted this tribe by helicopter lowering gifts to them to build goodwill. Then they moved uh, several months later, two miles downstream, and started to interact with two Harani scouts and who they befriended, thought everything was going great. They're about to move into the village when a raiding tribe killed all of Jim's team, all the men there. His wife, Elizabeth, and daughter were not there. Elizabeth decided to stay. Elizabeth Elliot learned the Harani language. Two years later, with her three-year-old daughter, moved in with the tribe and led most of the men who killed her husband to faith in Christ as loving brothers. Amazing. But here's what was found later in Jim Elliott's journal. He wrote this. He is no fool 
who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.